again. So, we are in chapter 9 of the Confession again. Last week, we were only in paragraph 1, just trying to lay a foundation. What is free will? And largely coming around to saying that we can say an action is free if in that action we did what we wanted to do. And so, in that sense, we are free creatures. As we will see in paragraphs 2 and 3 this morning, this was a wonderful thing prior to the fall because our inclinations were good. And so it was good that we could freely act and do what we wanted to do. But after the fall, this becomes chains upon us. After the fall, our desires are only sinful. And so we're bound in sin in that way in our freedom of will to do what we most desire to do, but in our sin, in our flesh, it will be sinful. To remind you of the outline of the chapter, chapter 1, or paragraph 1, I'm sorry, is an affirmation and definition of human free will. Paragraph 2 is unfallen free will. Paragraph 3 is fallen free will. Paragraph 4 is regenerate free will. And paragraph 5 is glorified free will. So, let's begin looking at paragraph 2. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. Now, I think on 1689.org, which is what I use when I'm making the lessons, I think it says unstable instead of mutable. And it seems unclear to me as to why, because it's not an issue of the modern language. It's more of just somewhere along the line the word changed. It means largely the same thing. But just in case you're looking at something else, his nature was mutable or unstable so that he might fall from it. Two points here. One, man had the freedom and power to do good. And second point, this state was mutable. It was not permanent. So, what does the Bible say about the state of man's nature prior to the fall? What are some texts we might look to to try and understand what was our nature like prior to the fall? Yeah, that's probably the most clear. Ecclesiastes 7.29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. God made man not just neutral and certainly not fallen, but God made man upright. Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature where they were inclined to sin like we are. Adam and Eve did not have a neutral nature where, you know, flip a coin either way, you know. But they had a good nature. They were inclined to do that which was good, which is something we can't relate with. That's not our experience. That's not how we experience reality. They weren't, they weren't enticed just naturally by evil. And when they heard the law of God, they didn't have that flare up where I would like to disobey, like Paul talks about. They had an upright, morally good nature. One other text that comes to my mind is just the Genesis account. Um, Genesis We'll just read uh, chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 31. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So this with Ecclesiastes really bolsters what we're talking about in that Adam and Eve were created good and morally upright. Were you going to add something, Caleb? Well, I just think of uh, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 2, but uh, Ephesians 4, I think, is clear on this point that we can, we're created in the image of God in the garden, and then regeneration or renewed in that image. Mm-hmm. When, when Ephesians talks about that image, it says in verse 24 of chapter 4, and to put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness mm-hmm. and holiness. Yeah. Yeah, and the likeness of God being an echo to what we're seeing here in Genesis 1. So, again, just to pause for a moment and consider this. When we consider, for example, the Ten Commandments, and like we said last week, that in paragraph 1, when it talks about how, well, in all the paragraphs, when it talks about having a will to do good, that good is not without definition. That definition is uh, what God says is good. We know what God says is good in the law of God. So when we think of some like the Ten Commandments, when we consider them, in the garden, there would not have been an inclination to disobey these commands. There would have been an inclination to obey these commands. They would have not been inclined to worship other gods. They would not have been inclined to worship God wrongly or at the wrong time. And remember, their Sabbath was instituted prior to the fall. And Adam and Eve would have been inclined to honor it. They would have been inclined, and their children uh, implicitly would have been inclined to honor their father and mother. They would have been inclined not to murder or commit adultery. They would not have been inclined to steal, lie, or covet. And covet getting to the internal, to heart issues. And so... Here, we see freedom in every sense that we've discussed prior, including last week. We looked at Galatians 5, and it said, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Freedom being understood in that context is freedom to do what God says is good. And Adam would have been totally free to do that. Eve would have been totally free to do that. And yet we know that as incomprehensibly good as that is, because I cannot necessarily relate to that uninhibited ability, that uninhibited inclination to do good. Although, like Caleb said, we do have some of that restored. We still have this sinful flesh that inclines us to sin. Adam and Eve didn't have that. And as good as it was that they had that, or had uninhibited inclination to do good, the difficult thing is that it was mutable. It was not a permanent situation. And if we're considering the Bible as a whole, one way we could talk about the whole narrative of the Bible is how God is going to bring us to a state where we will be like Adam, but immutable. Where we will have an uninhibited inclination to good, never to be endangered again. And as an aside, 
just in a little application at this point. If we consider the briefness of this period, how quickly Adam and Eve, with an upright moral nature, an inclination to do good, how quickly they fell because their, their status was mutable and not immutable, how much we should glory in that our status as regenerate Christians is immutable. Because if we, if we understand how quickly they fell with an upright nature, we should also understand how quickly I would fall, if I could, with my sin nature. And why so good, I know MacArthur said it, I know many others have said it, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And I really think this needs to be like burned into our memory, burned into our brains, so that there's no self-righteousness in me to think that there's something in me that could maintain my salvation. Adam and Eve could not maintain paradise with an upright nature, well, depending on who you talk to, even a day, even 24 hours. Certainly was not a long period of time, even if you don't take that view. And so we should not be inclined to think that there's anything in us that has to maintain our current status with Christ. We should celebrate that that's not the case. Because I would not be able to maintain it. The confession goes on to explain what happened after Adam and Eve fell into sin. Paragraph 3, man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And here we can also boil it down to two major points. The first Man has lost the ability to will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. We've lost that ability that Adam had. We no longer have it. And as a result of this, man dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And I think we have to look at Romans 5 to get this in detail. Romans 5, we're going to start in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you hear it multiple times in this passage. Sin came into the world through one man. Came into the world through Adam. Death came through sin and death comes to all men. In that one man, all sinned. One trespass brought condemnation for all, man, all men. And one man's disobedience made many to be sinners. This is the, one of the repeated themes of this passage. Getting into our minds, what happened in the garden? What happened when Adam sinned? All of humanity fell in him. And because of that, though God created man upright, we are no longer upright. Because of what Adam did and the sin and death that came in through him. This is what we call in theology, original sin. It is through Adam's sin that all of his posterity are tainted and lose what the confession says, all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. And now, we want to be a little careful because I think the confession is careful in its wording saying to will any good accompanying salvation. It doesn't stop to say to will any good, period. And what I think is helpful in this this is not saying that pagans don't do good things or that non-believers don't do good things. It is to say that they cannot do, they cannot please God is probably the best way to put it. In Hebrews 11.6, we read this last week, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Outside of Christ, we can do nothing to please God. Everything that is done outside of Christ is done as a God-hating rebel shaking his or her fist at their Maker. And so, they might feed the poor. They might clothe the naked. They might help people that need help and might do so even out of some kind of love for them. We don't have to deny any of that. But what we would affirm is that they don't do these things for the glory of God. And they don't do these things in a way that will please Him. Because our righteous deeds are filthy rags. And outside of faith, it is impossible to please Him. What more could we say about original sin? We've referenced this many times, but this is something else that would be good to be burned into our brains. What God says about human nature before and after the flood... In Genesis 6, 5, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this doesn't mean that nobody before the flood did anything that we might call good. It didn't mean that the son didn't bring his mom roses every now and then or something like that. I just remember somebody saying even Hitler did that. 
I don't know if we haven't documented, but we can assume that he did nice things for somebody sometime. But this doesn't get around the fact that he's a God-hating rebel. And prior to the fall, or prior to the flood, all of creation was wicked. It says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we know that we're tempted to think, well, that was a unique generation. Look what God had to do to wipe them out. It must have been really bad to get God to flood the earth. But God says after the flood, and when God smelled the, the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice after they were let off the ark, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. This is a description of who we are as human beings after the fall. That every imagination of our heart is wicked, continually wicked from our youth. Just to consider a different angle. When the Bible talks about doing what we want to do, and just to ask for texts that might come to mind, you, when does the Bible say they did what was right in their own eyes or they did what pleased them and we understand this is wicked? That, yeah, like you said, judges. And that's probably the most uh, obvious example. The book ends for the last terrible passages of that book where horrific things occurred all over the place. And just to give you a summary... God's people profaning the priesthood by a family hiring a priest and then the tribe of Dan wiping out that family and hiring that priest. The tribe of Dan openly embraces idolatry. The Levite priest takes a concubine and in Benjamin, a scene mirroring Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah takes place, but there is no one to save the concubine where in Sodom and Gomorrah there were the angels that saved the daughters of Lot. That doesn't happen in Judges. Benjamin and the rest of Israel go to war with each other, and the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely destroyed. And then, out of sadness that Benjamin's almost completely destroyed, they think, we need to find some wives for the men in Benjamin so that Benjamin can repopulate. How do they do that? They wipe out another tribe, not of Israel, and then take 40 virgin women of the people of Jabesh-Gilead to give wives to the remaining men in the tribe of Benjamin. How is this all described by the Bible? On both ends, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As if to say, if you want to know what human nature is like, and you do what's right in your own eyes, that madness is what's right in our own eyes. Are there any other texts that might come to mind? Yeah, yeah. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. This did not mean that they, you know, gave him a house and gave him a nice warm meal and let him, you know, take, did, that they took care of him. They didn't please that. It didn't please them to do that. It pleased them to kill him and abuse him. And so the Bible speaks euphemistically. They did what they pleased, and we understand that to mean they acted wickedly because we do not please righteous and good things on our own. There are a couple passages in Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. 
To go on to the second point of the paragraph three, perhaps the single most offensive statement in this paragraph, this chapter, and for some, perhaps the entire confession is this statement. That as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. The offensiveness of this statement that you are totally without ability. You are helpless because you are floundering in your own pool of sin. You prefer to be floundering in your own pool of sin and you do not prefer to be saved. That is us in our, in our natural state after the fall. This is not only offensive to the world generally, but it is offensive to many that profess Christ. And just, just a little bit. This is where we get a guy like Pelagius and his influence on the church after that. There's a reading, Michael Horton, talking about ta- uh, Pelagius, and he believed that we were born a clean slate, denying everything we've said about original sin, denying everything we've said about man's natural wickedness and inclination to do evil. He believed that Adam was created mortal and would have died whether he had sinned or not, that the sin of Adam injured himself alone and not the whole human race, that newborn children are in the same state in which Adam was before his fall, that neither by the death and sin of Adam does the whole human race die, nor will it rise because of the resurrection of Christ. The law as well as the gospel offers entrance to the kingdom of heaven, and even before the coming of Christ, there were men holy without sin. And if you deny original sin, then all these things kind of become fair game. They become things that we can contemplate. If we deny that there's a connection between us and Adam, as Romans 5 necessitates, then it is at least theoretically possible that I can live without sin. Pelagius essentially taught that our will is untainted with original sin. Therefore, we are just as free to choose the good as the evil. And Pelagius, perhaps in competition only with, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, the guy starts with an M, Marcion. They're probably in competition to be the most condemned heretics in church history. I don't necessarily know off the top of my head who wins that contest, but they're both up there. And Pelagius is condemned by many councils. And in the end, um, Horton says, in fact, the Council of Orange condemned even semi-Pelagianism, which maintains that grace is necessary, but that the will is free by nature to choose whether to cooperate with the grace offered. This, we would say, is what the Roman Catholic Church necessarily teaches. Grace is necessary, but not sufficient. You need grace, but then you also need to do works of love. You need to go to confession. You must do these things. The degree to which the Arminian emphasizes the freeness of our will to choose good accompanying salvation is the degree to which the Arminian has unwittingly imbibed at least semi-Pelagianism. And why I would say that is, if you remember, we talked about the state of theology survey that came out last year that Ligonier did. Just two statistics for you. Um, 65% of self-identified evangelicals believe we are born innocent 
born clean, born untainted, that's 65%. 66% say that we are good by nature. After the fall, created upright. This is the air we breathe in evangelicalism. And even if those numbers aren't exact, we know from experience that this is kind of the default understanding of evangelical Christians in the West. And it causes all kinds of problems for our theology. How do we know that this is not true? Well, again, we could appeal to a text like Genesis 8.21 that says that every imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. We could look at Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And I think a really important text to meditate on. When Jesus says in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why must we be born again? Because we're tainted with Adam's sin. And we commit our own sins on the daily. If Pelagius is right... And we're born innocent. We're born without sin. Why do we need to be born again? It's not necessary to be born again. I'm already clean. I'm not tainted with sin. But the only way that Christ's statement makes sense that I must be born again is if my natural birth puts me at enmity with God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. And it gets to the same idea. But the world, and unfortunately many professing Christians, take this line, I think of the line from Invictus, that poem, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the air we breathe. And it's not true. And again, we thank God that it's not true. Because I'm a terrible captain of my own fate. I'm a terrible captain of my own soul. I'll make shipwreck of it faster than Adam and Eve did. That's why Hebrews 12 is so wonderful that we're looking unto Jesus the captain of our salvation. He's one I can trust. I can't trust myself. What does the Bible say, beyond what we've already said, about our total inability to convert ourselves or to prepare ourselves for salvation? What are some texts that might come to mind? I just think of the beginning of Romans 5. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And then a little later in that, um, in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now we're reconciled to his Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We often think of a lot of passages in Romans, and this is good, but uh, you should think about John a lot too. The Gospel of John has a lot in line with this. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As if to go out of his way to say, you're not born of anything in you. 
You're born only of God and nothing else. John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, also. John 10, just in the first four verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought, all, brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Hear this emphasis on, I'm calling to them, they respond because they recognize my voice, they're my sheep, and they know me. And then you come to later in John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so, just the emphasis, this is in the same chapter. He begins this chapter by talking about my sheep hear my voice, and they come and they follow me. You are not following me because you are not among my sheep. You do not recognize my voice. He's telling them to their face. You don't hear. Romans 3, just briefly, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. There are no seekers that the seeker-sensitive church is trying to draw people in to make a response. There are no seekers except God. God is the seeker. We've got Ephesians 2. Remember, you were dead in your sins. I want to look at Titus 3 because it's a text I don't think we think of as often. Verse 3 in Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is our nature. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, whom He poured out, on, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, we're coming... You can't help but get to doxology here. If I come to truly embrace my total depravity, my total inability, then the best... Most glorious news I can have is that God is seeking me anyway. And that God is making a way where there is no way in and of myself. And so we can't be helped but stirred up to praise God that He would seek us at all. Because there's nothing good in us. 
There are no seekers outside of God's effectual calling, which is the subject of chapter 10 of the Confession. Outside of God's effectual calling, there are none who seek after God. Outside of God's sovereign grace, we are all willfully blind in our sins like the wicked men of Sodom. And just meditate on this picture. Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels blind the men and save Lot's daughters. What does it say after that? Verse 11 in Genesis 19. And they, the angels, struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, and they wore themselves out groping for the door. And we think, how disgusting these men must have been. But that's us. That is us in our sin. That is us outside of Christ. We can be smacked in the face by God's divine acts and still grope for the door for our pet sins. And still do. And the only thing that changes us is the Holy Spirit regenerating us. We are bound by our wicked desires, but in Christ we get new desires. And thus can have the freedom that the Bible talks about. This is why we so revel in God's sovereignty over salvation, because we have embraced what the Bible says about our inability. We know that we are, as Todd Friel likes to say, the wretches that the song refers to. And it's only once we embrace that that we can truly celebrate God's sovereignty over salvation. Because of that, there is no hope to be found unless God changes my affections and causes me to love the God I used to hate and to hate the sin I used to love. That is a divine act. There is no power in me to change my affections like that. My affections can only be changed by being born from above. And as Caleb read just a little bit ago, we can close with our meditation on Romans 5, 6-8. through 8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. And so consider this. We might be willing to die for people we really like or really love. We might be willing to do that. But when Christ died for us, He died for the most loathsome people in all of creation. That gave Him no reason to sacrifice Himself for anything. And so while we might be willing to show an act of heroism for people that we like and do nice things for us and excite uh, affections for them, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And all we can say is praise be to God. Because all He could find were sinners. And if He was going to have a people for Himself, it was completely dependent on Him. Totally outside of our ability. I think we better stop. So, please bow with me. Heavenly Father, We thank You. We thank You for the truth of Your Word that empties us of any self-righteousness, that empties us of any thought in our mind that we bring something to the table between us and You. We think to ourselves that You must have seen something good in us, that You would have done these things for us, but it's just not true. You saw only evil continually. And it's only by Your grace that we have any right affections at all. Lord, may we celebrate the God who died for us while we were still sinners. In Jesus' name, Amen.